0: We continue with Justice Thomas's concurring opinion in Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. v. Harvard College. The Fourteenth Amendment to the United States Constitution Its opening words instilled in our nation's constitution a new birth of freedom. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, are citizens of the United States, and of the State wherein they reside. No State shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any State deprive any person of life, liberty, or property, without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction equal protection of the laws. As enacted, the text of the 14th Amendment provides a firm statement of equality before the law. It begins by guaranteeing citizenship status, invoking the long-standing political and legal tradition that closely associated the status of citizenship with the entitlement to legal equality. It then confirms that states may not abridge the rights of national citizenship, including whatever civil equality is guaranteed to citizens under the Citizenship Clause. Finally, it pledges that even non-citizens must be treated equally as individuals and not as members of racial, ethnic, or religious groups. The drafters and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment focused on this broad equality idea, offering surprisingly little explanation of which term was intended to accomplish which part of the amendment's overall goal. The available materials show, however, that there were widespread expressions of a general understanding of the broad scope of the amendment similar to that abundantly demonstrated in the congressional debates, namely, that the first section of the amendment would establish the full constitutional right of all persons to equality before the law, and would prohibit legal distinctions based on race or color. For example, the Pennsylvania debate suggests that the 14th amendment was understood to make the law what justice is represented to be, blind to the color of one's skin. The most commonly held view today, consistent with the rationale repeatedly invoked during the Congressional debates, is that the amendment was designed to remove any doubts regarding Congress's authority to enact the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and to establish a non-discrimination rule that could not be repealed by future Congresses. The amendment's phrasing supports this view, and there does not appear to have been any argument to the contrary, predating Brown. Consistent with the Civil Rights Act of 1866's aim, the amendment definitively overruled Chief Justice Taney's opinion in Dred Scott that blacks were not regarded as a portion of the people or citizens of the government, and had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. And, like the 1866 Act, the amendment also clarified that American citizenship conferred rights not just against the federal government, but also the government of the citizen's state of residence. Unlike the Civil Rights Act, however, the amendment employed a wholly race-neutral text, extending privileges or immunities to all citizens even if its practical effect was to provide all citizens with the same privileges then enjoyed by whites. That citizenship guarantee was often linked with the concept of equality. Combining this citizenship guarantee with the Privileges or Immunities Clause and the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment ensures protection for all equal citizens of the nation, without regard to race. Put succinctly, our Constitution is colorblind. In the period closely following the 14th Amendment's ratification, Congress passed several statutes designed to enforce its terms, eliminating government-based black codes, systems of government-imposed segregation, and criminalizing racially motivated violence. The marquee legislation was the Civil Rights Act of 1875, and the justifications offered by proponents of that measure are further evidence for the colorblind view of the 14th Amendment. The Civil Rights Act of 1875 sought to counteract the systems of racial segregation that had arisen in the wake of the Reconstruction Era. Advocates of so-called separate-but-equal systems, which allowed segregated facilities for blacks and whites, had argued that laws permitting or requiring such segregation treated members of both races precisely alike. Blacks could not attend a white school, but symmetrically, whites could not attend a black school. Congress was not persuaded. Supporters of the soon-to-be 1875 Act successfully countered that symmetrical restrictions did not constitute equality, and they did so on colorblind terms. For example, they asserted that free government demands the abolition of all distinctions founded on color and race and, they submitted, that the time has come when all distinctions that grew out of slavery ought to disappear. Leading Republican Senator Charles Sumner compellingly argued that any rule excluding a man on account of his color is an indignity, an insult, and a wrong. Far from conceding that segregation would be perceived as inoffensive if race roles were reversed, he declared that this is plain oppression which you would feel keenly were it directed against you or your child. He went on to paraphrase the English common law rule to which he subscribed. The law makes no discrimination on account of color. Others echoed this view. Representative John Lynch declared that the duty of the lawmaker is to know no race, no color, no religion, no nationality, except to prevent distinctions on any of these grounds, so far as the law is concerned. Senator John Sherman believed that the route to peace was to wipe out all legal discriminations between white and black, and make no distinction between black and white and Senator Henry Wilson sought to make illegal all distinctions on account of color, because there should be no distinction recognized by the laws of the land. The view of the legislature was clear. The Constitution neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. Section D the earliest Supreme Court opinions to interpret the 14th Amendment did so in colorblind terms. Their statements characterizing the amendment evidence its commitment to equal rights for all citizens, regardless of the color of their skin. In the Slaughterhouse Cases, 1873, the Court identified the pervading purpose of the Reconstruction Amendment's As the freedom of the slave race, the security and firm establishment of that freedom, and the protection of the newly made freeman and citizen from the oppression of those who had formerly exercised unlimited dominion over him. Yet the court quickly acknowledged that the language of the amendments did not suggest that no one else but the Negro can share in this protection. Rather, if Mexican peonage or the Chinese coolie labor system shall develop slavery of the Mexican or Chinese race within our territory, the Thirteenth Amendment may safely be trusted to make it void. And similarly, if other rights are assailed by the states which properly and necessarily fall within the protection of these articles, that protection will apply though the party interested may not be of African descent. The court thus made clear that the 14th Amendment's equality guarantee applied to members of all races, including Asian Americans, ensuring all citizens equal treatment under law. Seven years later, the court relied on the slaughterhouse view to conclude that the words of the 14th Amendment contain a necessary implication of a positive immunity or right most valuable to the colored race, the right to exemption from unfriendly legislation against them distinctively as colored. The court thus found that the 14th Amendment banned express racial classifications no matter the race affected, because these classifications are a stimulant to race prejudice. Similar statements appeared in other cases decided around that time. This court's view of the 14th Amendment reached its nadir in Plessy, infamously concluding that the 14th Amendment could not have been intended to abolish distinctions based upon color or to enforce social as distinguished from political equality, or a commingling of the two races upon terms unsatisfactory to either. That holding stood in sharp contrast to the court's earlier embrace of the 14th Amendment's equality ideal, as Justice Harlan emphasized in dissent. The Reconstruction Amendments had aimed to remove the race line from our systems of governments. For Justice Harlan, the Constitution was colorblind and categorically rejected laws designed to protect a dominant race, a superior class of citizens, while imposing a badge of servitude on others. History has vindicated Justice Harlan's view, and this court recently acknowledged that Plessy should have been overruled immediately because it betrayed our commitment to equality before the law. Nonetheless, and despite Justice Harlan's efforts, the era of state-sanctioned segregation persisted for more than a half century. Section E Despite the extensive evidence favoring the colorblind view, as detailed above, it appears increasingly in vogue to embrace an anti-subordination view of the 14th Amendment, that the amendment forbids only laws that hurt, but not help, blacks. Such a theory lacks any basis in the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. Respondents cite a smattering of federal and state statutes passed during the years surrounding the ratification of the 14th Amendment, and Justice Sotomayor's dissent argues that several of these statutes evidence the ratifier's understanding that the Equal Protection Clause permits consideration of race to achieve its goal. Upon examination, however, it is clear That these statutes are fully consistent with the colorblind view. Start with the 1865 Freedmen's Bureau Act. That act established the Freedmen's Bureau to issue provisions, clothing, and fuel needful for the immediate and temporary shelter and supply of destitute and suffering refugees and freedmen and their wives and children and the setting apart for the use of loyal refugees and freedmen, abandoned, confiscated, or purchased lands, and assigning to every male citizen, whether refugee or freedman, not more than 40 acres of such land. The 1866 Freedmen's Bureau Act then expanded upon the prior year's law, authorizing the Bureau to care for all loyal refugees and freedmen. Importantly, however, the acts applied to freedmen and refugees, a formally race-neutral category, not blacks writ large. And because not all blacks in the United States were former slaves, freedmen was a decidedly under-inclusive proxy for race. Moreover, the Freedmen's Bureau served newly freed slaves alongside white refugees. And advocates of the law explicitly disclaimed any view rooted in modern conceptions of anti-subordination. To the contrary, they explicitly clarified that the equality sought by the law was not one in which all men shall be six feet high— Rather, it strove to ensure that freedmen enjoy equal rights before the law, such that each man shall have the right to pursue in his own way life, liberty, and happiness. Several additional federal laws cited by respondents appear to classify based on race, rather than previous condition of servitude. For example, an 1866 law adopted special rules and procedures for the payment of colored servicemen in the Union Army to agents who helped them secure bounties, pensions, and other payments that they were due. At the time, however, Congress believed that many black servicemen were significantly overpaying for these agents' services, in part because the servicemen did not understand how the payment system operated. Thus, while this legislation appears to have provided a discrete race-based benefit, its aim, to prohibit race-based exploitation, may not have been possible at the time without using a racial screen. In other words, the statute's racial classifications may well have survived strict scrutiny. Another law passed in 1867 provided funds for freedmen or destitute colored people in the District of Columbia. However, when a prior version of this law targeting only blacks was criticized for being racially discriminatory, it was defended on the grounds that there were various places in the city where former slaves lived in densely populated shantytowns. Congress thus may have enacted the measure not because of race, but rather to address a special problem in shantytowns in the district where blacks lived. These laws, even if targeting race as such, likely were also constitutionally permissible examples of government action, undoing the effects of past discrimination in a way that does not involve classification by race, even though they had a racially disproportionate impact. The government can plainly remedy a race-based injury that it has inflicted, though such remedies must be meant to further a colorblind government, not perpetuate racial consciousness. In that way, race-based government measures during the 1860s and 1870s to remedy state-enforced slavery— were not inconsistent with the colorblind Constitution. Moreover, the very same Congress passed both these laws and the unambiguously worded Civil Rights Act of 1866 that clearly prohibited discrimination on the basis of race. And, as noted above, the proponents of these laws explicitly sought equal rights without regard to race, while disavowing any anti-subordination view. Justice Sotomayor argues otherwise, pointing to a number of race-conscious federal laws passed around the time of the 14th Amendment's enactment. She identifies the Freedmen's Bureau Act of 1865, already discussed above, as one such law, but she admits that the programs did not benefit blacks exclusively. She also does not dispute that legislation targeting the needs of newly freed blacks in 1865 could be understood as directly remedial. Even today, nothing prevents the states from according an admissions preference to identified victims of discrimination. Justice Sotomayor points also to the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which, as discussed above, mandated that all citizens have the same rights as those enjoyed by white citizens. But these references to the station of white citizens do not refute the view that the 14th Amendment is colorblind. Rather, they specify that, in meeting the Amendment's goal of equal citizenship, states must level up. The Act did not single out a group of citizens for special treatment. Rather, all citizens were meant to be treated the same as those who, at the time, had the full rights of citizenship. Other provisions of the 1866 Act reinforce this view, providing for equality in civil rights. Most notably, Section 14 stated that the basic civil rights of citizenship shall be secured without respect to race or color. And Section 8 required that funds from land sales must be used to support schools without distinction of color or race in the parishes of the area where the land had been sold. In addition to these federal laws, Harvard also points to two state laws, a South Carolina statute that placed the burden of proof on the defendant when a colored or black plaintiff claimed a violation, and Kentucky legislation that authorized a county superintendent to aid Negro paupers in Mercer County. Even if these statutes provided race-based benefits, they do not support respondents and Justice Sotomayor's view that the 14th Amendment was contemporaneously understood to permit differential treatment based on race, prohibiting only caste legislation while authorizing anti-subordination measures. At most, these laws would support the kinds of discrete remedial measures that our precedents have permitted. If services had been given only to white persons up to the 14th Amendment's adoption, then providing those same services only to previously excluded black persons would work to equalize treatment against a concrete baseline of government-imposed inequality. It thus may have been the case that Kentucky's county-specific race-based public aid law was necessary because that particular county was not providing certain services to local poor blacks. Similarly, South Carolina's burden-shifting framework may have been necessary to streamline litigation around the most commonly litigated type of case, a lawsuit seeking to remedy discrimination against a member of the large population of recently freed black Americans. Most importantly, however, there was a wide range of federal and state statutes enacted at the time of the 14th Amendment's adoption and during the period thereafter that explicitly sought to discriminate against blacks on the basis of race or a proxy for race. These laws, hallmarks of the race-conscious Jim Crow era, are precisely the sort of enactments That the framers of the 14th Amendment sought to eradicate. Yet proponents of an anti subordination view necessarily do not take those laws as evidence of the 14th Amendment's true meaning. And rightly so. Neither those laws nor a small number of laws that appear to target blacks for preferred treatment displace the equality vision reflected in the history of the 14th Amendment's enactment. This is particularly true in light of the clear equality requirements present in the 14th Amendment's text. This opinion has been divided into multiple episodes, and we've just come to the end of the second. But don't worry, next episode will pick up exactly where this one left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.